Welcome to the podcast of First Baptist Church in Wilson, Oklahoma, preaching the weekly teaching and preaching ministry of the church. We are grateful that you are choosing to join us today. Our prayer is that you are blessed by today's study of God's Word, and your heart will be receptive to what God desires to teach you today. For more information about FBC Wilson, please visit our website at fbcwilson.org. We hope you enjoyed today's service, and we look forward to studying God's Word with you today. you do, invite for you to join me in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And hopefully when you come in, you get one of these bulletins. Um, as always, on the back of that bulletin, there'll be some notes if you want to use that as we work through the Word this morning. So Mark chapter 5 is where we're going to continue in our study through God's Word. I appreciate you, Greg, and those that serve with you in leading us in worship And as we come to Mark chapter 5 this morning, we're really on the hill of a bit of a mini-series. And so back in Mark chapter 4, he turned the camera angle, if you will, the view of the camera, and turned it from the individual and from the church, and he turned it on to Christ. And so he's going to spend um, these, uh, this is the fourth week. Next week, Lord willing, in Mark chapter 6, he, he talks about the response of the people to the reality of who Jesus was. But here, he's kind of this fourth part of talking about the different aspects or the different elements about who Christ is. So if you remember the last part of Mark chapter 4, he talked about the sovereignty of Christ over creation and the calming of the storm and the, and the calming of the waves. And then you get to the beginning of Mark chapter 5 and he talks about the authority of Christ over the demonic as he comes there. And he cast out the demon um, that was oppressing the demoniac there in Gennesaret. And so Mark says, not only is this guy, Jesus Christ, not only does he have sovereignty over creation, he has authority over the demonic. And then last week, we were here in Mark chapter 5 talking about how Christ has power over the physical. So we saw the woman that had the debilitating um, sickness and the discharge for 12 years. And through that, Christ showed he demonstrated his power. He demonstrated his godliness over that physical ailment and over that physical limitation. So what Mark is doing, he's showing Jesus Christ in different lights and different aspects of who Jesus is to say, You need to understand that this is the Messiah, that this is the Savior, that this is the one sent from God. So he talks about his sovereignty over creation, talks about his authority over the demonic, talks about his power over the physical. And then this morning, he is going to continue this picture here in Mark chapter 5, and he's going to talk about something that we can all relate to, and that is death. Maybe you haven't been... On a body of water in the midst of a storm in the middle of the night. And so talking about him calming the storms is something that you and I may understand conceptually, but we may have never experienced personally. Maybe you have not recognized, or maybe you don't have any firsthand experience of dealing with the mnemonic. And the idea of casting out that man, or that that legion of demons that was oppressing that man, is something that you and I, again, can understand conceptually, but we don't really have a personal category for it. And for some of you, you're healthy. And the concept or the thought of a debilitating condition that colors and influences and consumes your entire life is difficult for you to grasp. 
So again, once you can think about it conceptually, it's just difficult to think about it personally. So I think what Mark does here, he does this on purpose. Not only is it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he brings us to this point, but but I think there's a bigger plan by God to say that you see the power and the authority and the sovereignty of Christ in these different things. And no matter where you're at in the room this morning, no matter where you are at in the story, in the gospel, according to Mark, there is something here that you can relate to. So we're going to go back to verse 21 because it really sets up the stage. And then now, if you think about last week, last week we were sitting there in uh, verse 25 down through verse 34. So we're going to go back and pick it up in verse 21 where we've we've got that picture in our head, that that, that idea of, of last week still fresh in our minds. And so we're going to look at the story that focuses on the daughter of Jarius. And what, G- what I submit to you this morning that Mark is wanting to do is Mark is wanting to make sure that you and I, as a believer, as a listener, as a reader, he wants to make sure we understand that Christ has power over everything. Christ even has power over death. So if you'd follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read aloud out of mine, I'm going to start there in verse 21 of Mark chapter 5. Mark writes, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be, or that she may be made well and live. Verse 24, and he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And then you get down to verse uh, 25, down through verse 34. We were there last week talking about the woman with the discharge of blood. So we're going to pass over that. And you go back down there to verse 35. And this is where this scene picks back up. And while he was speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he followed, or I'm sorry, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making such a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was and taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. I pray that God adds understanding and application to his word this morning. As I previously mentioned, Mark, I submit to you this morning, is trying to make the point of the power of Christ over death. And and as he does this, he wants to set this story up, being inspired by the Holy Spirit. He he wants to set this story up when it comes to the power of Christ over death by by giving us several, several different ways that we often conceive 
of death. So if you go back up there to verse 21 or verse 22 or verse 23 or verse 24, Mark is using that time to remind us of the reality of death. If you go back up there in verse 21, he gets out of the sea as we've already read. And then verse 22, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue and he fell at his feet. Verse 23, implored him earnestly. It's this idea that the person was coming, Jairus was coming, and he was begging, he was pleading, he was exhorting, he was coming, falling at his seat, pleading, Please, Jesus, do something. And here we're introduced to this idea in verse 23 of the condition, of the reality, of the problem that Jarius was facing. His little girl was about to die. Now we can relate to that in our humanity because as long as the Lord continues to tarry his coming, death is going to come for every single one of us. There are very few things hundred percent success rate and death is one of them and here in the text mark takes us back takes our minds back takes our thoughts back to the reality of death and, and there's several things that he highlights here number one is the timing is often unexplainable you see the father coming to jesus and he's saying it's my little girl we see back down there in verse 42 that she was only 12 years old old. And so it was something unexpected. It was something that you say, why now? Why here? Why in this time? And many times as he is pointing here in verse 23 and verse 22, this time is he Timing is unexplainable. This timing is unexpected. And whatever the daughter was facing, whatever the sickness that she was dealing with, whatever the condition was, it was such a condition and such a situation that he knew. He knew this was going to get worse and he knew that she was going to die. There are many of you in this room that have seen loved ones and friends, and people around you contract or come down or be afflicted by conditions that eventually take their lives. And one of the things that I'm reading here in the text and I'm thinking about what Jarius must be thinking and I'm thinking about what he must be dealing with, he is watching his little girl die. And I don't know about you, but from my perspective point, that, that affliction is despicable. And I don't mean in the way that it's ungodly. I'm not saying it's in the way that, is, that, that, that it is unexplainable. It's one of those things that it's not just a sudden thing. It's not just a, 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 an immediate thing. It's something that we see as Mark is explaining the condition of Jairus. As Mark is explaining what he's dealing with. As, he, as he's explaining about the emotions and he's trying to relate the emotions through the text. You can just imagine a father coming up and saying, this wasn't on my calendar for this year. This wasn't what I was expecting. And I have been watching my daughter thinking she's sick. She's going to get better. She's going to get better tomorrow. It's going to be different tomorrow. And I've gone and I've looked at different doctors and I've looked at different options. And I've looked at different treatments and nothing is working. And she's at the point that if I don't get help, she will die. And the reality of death that Mark is saying that death comes to us all. And while we're in that moment, it is understanding when we become desperate. Think about Jairus and what the scripture tells us about Jairus. He's a ruler of the synagogue. Now, what we know so far in the Gospel of Mark, 
rulers of the synagogues, especially the Jews, they were not the most receptive to the early teaching and the ministry of Christ. So the fact that you have a Jewish religious leader coming to Jesus is very significant. Also, in that culture, they're still operating under the Old Testament concept of life. And so they would think that an evidence of being in God's favor and an evidence of being where God wants you to be is life, wealth, prosperity, all the good things. So the fact that you are a religious leader and you're deciding to go to Jesus means that you've already probably over, already exhausted all the other options. And you probably sat there and you wrangled with God and you said, God, I'll make you a deal. God, if you just do this, we've made promises, we've made offers. And this leader of the synagogue's coming and saying, I have nowhere else to go. And death will do that to us. And as you're reading what Mark is writing, you get to the point you're going, I I know what this is like. I know what it's like to not expect the timing. I know what it's like to hate the affliction. I know what it's like to be desperate before God. And it's the reality that Mark is showing us here in the text. And I don't want to move past it. You know, so many times it's an opportunity for us to be excited, and it's an opportunity for us to be joyful, and it's an opportunity for us to smile when we get in the Word of God. But there are some times that we as a congregation need to feel the weight of what Mark is saying. Because it's just like Charles was trying to talk about this morning in Romans chapter 3. Some of those verses point us to our deficit. Some of those verses point us to our failures. Some of those verses point us to us not being enough. It points to our sins so that we might have hope in the things to come. So, so here in this text, Mark sets this up by reminding us of the reality of death. And so you have at this scene, you, if you're just reading this on your first reading, verse 22 and verse 23, you have Jesus there. You have the ruler of synagogue, Jairus, that he, that he is there and he's pleading. He is begging. He's not just saying, hey, if you get time, you put me on your schedule. He's not saying, hey, I've got, an, uh, I've got an opportunity over here. Would you come talk about it? No, he's coming and he's saying, there's nothing else that matters more important than you coming and seeing my Daughter, which is why it's easy for you and I then to get over to verse 35 and miss the gravity of the moment. So Jesus says, yes, I will come. That's verse 24. He went with them and a great crowd followed about him. And then he gets distracted. The woman with the discharge of blood comes up, touches his garment. She's healed. Jesus realizes that someone was healed. He turns around and he looks for the woman. We talked about this last week. The woman comes up trembling, admits what he had done. He told her, your faith has saved you. And, and there's this conversation going on. And, and here, here's how my sanctified imagination thinks. So I can just imagine Jesus sitting there and he's having a conversation with this woman. And Jairus is there going, no, 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 come on, come on, come on, come on. You need to come with me. Don't talk to her. Come with me. Don't deal with this. You can come back and recap the miracle later on. You just come with me. And he's sitting there. And I can just imagine he's impatient. I can just imagine he is hurried. I can just imagine he is concerned. I can just imagine that he has fret and worry and anxiety all over his face because he's thinking, this is the only hope that I have and this guy needs to come with me. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. 
want you to see with me this morning that not only does Mark show us the reality of death, but I think he also shows us the defeat of death. Because in verse 35, it says, while he was still speaking, talking about Jesus, while Jesus was still talking, someone, some people, some singular, some plural, came up to Jairus and said, your daughter has died. There's no reason to trouble him the finality of what that represents when you hear they are gone. I put there in your notes, the word is haunting. Death died past. It's haunting. Because despite what many times we tell ourselves in our mind, our emotions and our feelings still are wrenched and twisted and tested. And I just see there in verse 35 as they come up to Jarius, they're not coming up and saying, hey, this is the latest update. They're not coming up and saying, hey, this is the latest set of events. Hey, this is the next step you need to take. It's like they're coming with a defeated attitude. They're like coming with a defeated spirit. They're like coming with a defeated mindset saying, hey, there's no reason to do anything else over. And I don't know about you, but in those times, it feels like our efforts are futile. I can take you to the exact place, the driveway of the lease road off of Highway 9, southeast, Lake Thunderbird, I got the phone call that my grandpa, my dad's dad, had passed away. I could take you to the beast of sand in Iraq in the little GP small tent that I was setting in on an old junkie communication device where I read the message that my grandfather, my mother's father, had passed away. I could take you to the stretch of road where I was at when I received the phone call that my grandmother, my mom's mom, had passed away. I could take you to the restaurant where I was sitting at an armor with my family when my brother called me to tell me that my brother Chris had passed away. I could take you to the place in the hospital And I could put an X on the floor where I was standing. My father passed away. I could take you to the moment and the experience that I was at when I learned of both of Jalen's miscarriages. And I can tell you that that doesn't make me an expert. But I do think that what that allows me to do is to speak from some level of experience that when we face those moments, you're not alone if you feel like all hope is gone. You're not the only one. You're not the first one. You won't be the last one. 
And you may say, well, Spence, that sounds a little bit unspiritual. Yes, it is unspiritual. You, Spence, you mean, you mean with all of your training and all of your education, that's the best you got? No, brothers and sisters, I'm telling you that when you get that moment that that person has died, that that person is gone, that that person has passed away, that word is haunting. It feels like all the efforts to prolong life, all the efforts to sustain life, all the efforts to keep life going, it seems like all of those have become futile. And when you're in that moment, the danger is that all hope feels gone. It's the sting of death. It's the hopelessness of death. And it's that moment when you feel like you are in an immense amount of pain, but not a physical pain. It's an emotional pain. And you just wonder, how will I go on? Now, here's the tension that I think Mark puts us at in verse 35 is that all of us in this room and even all of those sitting with Darius and Jesus and the throngs of the people that were around him, every single person now had a decision to make. How would they respond? What would they do? And so you see, so many times my concern is, and especially I see this in pastoral ministry, is there will be people and they don't have a classification of how to process. They don't have a way to try to understand. They don't have a way to try to grasp. What they do is, is they begin to treat death like the rest of the pagans. And so what they say is, death is going to happen. I can't help it. I have no hope. And so what I will do is I'll just start living like the only thing that matters is what I do today. So we see this happening where people think that only thing that matters in this life is the size of their vehicle or, or how much money they have in the bank or how nice of a house they live in or what kind of vacation photos they have or how many education accomplishments they have or the job they have and the, people, the public opinion of people. And so they start living like this is it because they've missed the understanding of what death is. And they have started living more for this life than the life yet to come. They understand the reality of death. They have dealt with the defeat of death. So now they're just sitting there going, so now it's just up for me to get everything I can as long as I can, while I can. But verse 36 Mark shows us the reality. Mark shows us the defeat. And here in my sanctified imagination, I think to myself, okay, so you got the scene, you got Jesus there, and you got the woman that is there, and you got Jairus that is there, and you got the disciples that are there, and the people are around him, and the guy comes up to Jairus and says, hey, your, your daughter's dead. And I just wonder if Jairus didn't look at the woman. And I wonder if Jairus just didn't look at Jesus and said, if only. Uh, you think about John chapter 11 and, and Jesus tarries when he knows that Lazarus is sick and when he finally shows up. Remember? It's Martha that comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, why'd you wait so long? If you just come on, my brother would still be alive. And it's not that she's mad at Jesus. She's just confused. And I just wonder, like with Jerry, does he then look at the woman and like, it's your fault. Does he look at Jesus and say, it's your fault. And, and Mark doesn't give us this, and I'm glad he doesn't give us this because this, we don't need to know this. But, I, but in my mind, I just wonder, how did this scene go? The news comes, your daughter's dead, don't worry about it any longer. And then Mark goes straight into verse 35. 
And maybe it's because, maybe, just maybe, and this is just my, my opinion here, maybe it's because the point of the story is not about us dwelling with the death, but focusing on the hope. Could it be that sometimes we face situations in our lives that if we're not careful, we begin to soak and waller? And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be sad. I'm not saying that we shouldn't grieve. I'm not saying that it's not a big deal and you just need to pull your big boy or girl britches on and just get over it. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that sometimes you and I can sit and waller to our own spiritual detriment. I'm not saying forget. I'm not saying ignore. But maybe, maybe the reason why we don't get any more information between verse 34 and verse 35, because the focus is not on the grief of Jairus, the focus is on the hope that you can have in Christ. So verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house, or sorry, verse 36, but overhearing what they said, so Jesus, he's this is, a, this is a time where it's okay to eavesdrop. My children are not allowed, but Jesus can because he's Jesus. Verse 36, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. So he looks at Jesus and goes, dude, chill. I got this. Say it again. Do not fear, only believe. But Jesus, did you just hear them? You must have because you were overhearing us. My daughter's dead, so you're telling me not to, not to grieve, not, not, not to respond, not to, not to have fear, just to believe? Yeah, that, that, that's what I'm telling you. But did you not just hear what they said? Yeah. See, so many times our belief informs our perspective. Jesus saw it differently, saw the moment, saw the circumstance differently because he knew it was different. Because of what he believed, it informed how he looked at it. Which is why it's very telling. When you get to a funeral memorial service, it's very telling when you watch how people deal and experience grief and loss. Because you can see the, what they believe by how they grieve. So Jesus here in verse 36, it's not even a moment. He doesn't even get a tear in his eye. It's not like he even says, oh, well, that's a bummer. I'm sorry to hear that. I'll send flowers. He doesn't do any of that. He just looks at him and says, do not fear, only believe. And so what does he do? He, verse 37, he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John. They came to the house. There was a whole bunch of people sitting there crying. Verse 39, he walked in and he looked at them, wheeling and, and wailing and, and the loud commotion that it talks about in verse 39. And what does he say? He says, the child is not dead, but sleeping. And then what happened? in verse 40, and they laughed at him. The, you go back to the original language, that they laughed at him is in the emphatic. It's like, it is, should have an exclamation point. It was like when he looked at them and said, the child is not dead, but only sleeping. It's like he was laughed out of the place. Why? Because they didn't believe that it was Jesus. You know, many times our grief will reveal our faith. 
It's what we have faith in. It's what we choose to believe in. It's how we choose to place our trust that is revealed in the moments of grief. It is easy to say that I believe in Jesus Christ when everything is going easy. It's easy to believe that I believe in who God is when everything is rosy. It's easy to say that, oh yeah, I know that God is in control until I disagree with his control. It's easy to say that God is good until it doesn't feel like it. It's easy to say that God knows everything until you do not understand. It's easy to say that you trust God until your world is in crisis. It's easy. And whether it's grief here in this text, whether it's trials with the woman with the discharge, whether it is the faith of the people there in Gennesaret when it came to the demoniac, or whether it was even the faith of the disciples in the boat, there was a time of testing that came. And so Jesus not only is giving a time of testing to Jairus in verse, back up in verse 36 by saying, do not fear, only believe. But now he comes and the entire crowd. Now, if he's a re- religious leader of the Jewish synagogue, he had a bit of an influence. And there were a lot of people that were gathered around him. And there were a lot of people there in the room. And there was a great crowd that were there. And so everyone is having the opportunity to, to say, do we believe in Jesus Christ? Instead of trusting and following and believing by faith, they chose to rely on what they could see by sight. And they laughed at him. And before you and I pull out our little pebbles and rocks and we start throwing rocks at them for laughing, that idea of laughing is just to say that they just completely disagreed. They completely disbelieved. They completely dismissed what he had to say. That idea of laughing is they just looked at him and said, you are crazy. Okay. Have you ever looked at God and said, you're crazy? I can't go talk to that person about Jesus. I can't get past this season of my life. There's no way I can quit this job and move in that direction. There's no way that I can forgive this person for what they did. There's no way I can love this person despite what they did. You see, so many times you and I find ourselves in a moment where we say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I am seeking to be obedient to his words and his ways. And all these things might be true until that moment of testing comes. And then we're going, well, you know what? I'm willing to believe And there in the text, it says they laughed at him. They just simply dismissed. They did not believe. They did not agree. They did not understand. They did not conceive. They did not grasp it as they, this guy is nuts. And I wonder how many times you can relate with me that not not that I laughed at him in a laughing sense like we use the word today, but I've laughed at him going, there is no way this will work. Until, verse 40, he put them all outside, took the mother and the father, Peter, James, and John, took them into the girl, says, Talithu kumi, Talithu kumai, it's Aramaic, just simply says, little girl, get up. 
It doesn't really explain to us how he did that. If he just looked at her, grabbed her by the hand, rubbed her on the hand. He, did, hey. he brought her back from death. What once was dead was now alive. He brought her back, and it says, verse 42, she immediately got up and began walking around. And then another understatement there at the end of the verse 42, they were immediately amazed. They were astonished. I put in your notes. They were bewildered. They were were seeing something they could not explain because the girl gets up, and now she starts walking around. And all these people in the house that had been laughing are going, they don't understand it. What is Mark trying to drive it to? Mark is trying to drive us to that the difference in that story was not the belief or the faith of Jairus. The difference in the story was not the reaction or the response from the people. The difference in the story was not the merit or the worthiness of the little girl. The difference in the story was not the presence of Peter, James, and John. The difference in the world was in Christ there is hope. In Christ, there is hope. And so what does he do? He says, and he comes into this section, and Mark says, do you understand who this Jesus is? Because in Jesus Christ, we have hope. They had hope in the boat when the storms came. They had hope there in the cemetery when the demoniac was being oppressed. They had hope when the woman had touched his garments, and now they have hope. And Mark is saying, do you understand who this Jesus Christ is? In him, he has sovereignty. In him, he has authority. In him, he has power. And in him, we have So that brings you and I to then go in the moment, in the midst of the pain and the grief and the suffering. We can have hope. I've spent enough time in counseling books, psychology books. They talk about when you go through the death of a loved one, the different stages of grief. I'm not denying that, and I'm not saying that's not true. But there's lots of ways that we have created in our humanity to try to explain the spiritual. And at some point, we just need to simply say, where is my hope at for tomorrow? Is my hope in my ability, my health? Is my hope in my knowledge or my wisdom? Is my hope in my power or my authority or the doctors or the medical systems or the medicine is my hope in something of this world or is my hope going to rely on Jesus Christ? Mark shows us in the story that the beautiful thing of the story is that Christ showed himself faithful. So how do we take this passage and understand it as a message that we as a church have for other people? Now, yes, Mark is talking about death. And yes, Mark is talking about the hope that Christ is even in the midst of death. He's talking about the hope that we can have in Christ when we're facing death or even when we are observing death. He talks about those things. So then what is it that you and I then can come down to and to say, all right, so then how do we, how do we give this message of hope to a world? Especially within these core values of building families, teaching the Bible, and being the church. So hold your place there in Mark chapter 5 and turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. All the way over to the left of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, 
Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, there's some instructions. There's some instructions on how we are to approach. And I'm not talking about the, the, the subject of death specifically, but how are we are to approach our belief, our trust, our faith in God. You see, I put there in your notes that faith is tested and taught in the home. How it is that we take this message of hope, the hope that we have in Christ, and you say when you're going through, and, and I've experienced this personally, how do you look at a three-year-old and explain to them that Papa's gone? How do you look at a child and say that God is good even though you're sad. Not only how do you process it personally, but how do you explain it to children that expect you to have the answer? Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Moses writes and he says, Hear, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these are the words that I command you today. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk with them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost and on your house and on your gates. What is Moses saying there in Deuteronomy chapter 5? He is reminding the people that one of the ways that you and I can begin to prepare us and our families for the trials, the struggles, and the grief of death is to teach them what God's word says. And what does God's word says? God's word says that God created us with a plan and a purpose. One day we will die, but yet even in the midst of death, we can have hope because he has given us a soul, a soul that is eternal. And we have an opportunity to teach them that even when we don't understand it, that is God is good. Even when we can't conceive it, God is still in control. Even when we do not understand, God is still God. Because this whole world will give them a whole bunch of moving targets that fluctuate and shift from place to place to place. And the only thing that we have sound is God's word. I read to you a book last week. Tonight, if you come back, we're going to spend some time talking about Carl Rogers. And the danger sometimes in our humanity is we unpin ourselves, unanchor ourselves from the authority of God's word. And then we're carried around, as the Bible says, by every wind of doctrine. So how do we develop a family? How do we develop a faith in the home that can stand the testing, that can stand the trials, that can stand the struggles? Moses says, teach them God's word. Does that give you every explanation? So when that three-year-old looks at me and says, Dad, why is Pap not going to come back? Does that give me and say, well, son, or, son, I can just give you a simple explanation? No, but it gives me a grounding. It gives me a founding. It gives me to say, because it was in the timing and the plan and the purpose of God. And I get to explain to him. And I get to show him what it looks like to grieve in faith, what it looks like to cry in faith, what it looks like to hope in faith and what it looks like to be obedient in faith. So Mark says death is reality and either death can defeat you or death can remind you of the hope that we have in Christ. So what do we do? We 
take this good news. We take these teachings, as Deuteronomy 6 says, and we teach it to our children. And so we understand that this message has application to the church today because faith is tested and taught in the home. But then not only that, we also need to understand, and you can turn there from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and go with me to Matthew chapter 25. Because in Matthew chapter 25, we're reminded that physical death is only the beginning. When we think about death and we think about the reality of death and we think about how often it can feel like a defeat and it can feel final and then it can feel like this is the end, we need to understand that physical death is only the beginning. So that means every single one of us in this room, if the Lord continues to tarry and we physically die, that is not the end. That is only the beginning. Matthew chapter 25. Jesus says this, verse 33, sorry, back up in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. And then he goes on in the passage and he gets down to verse 46. And talking about these sheep and the goats, he says, and these will go away, one into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What Jesus reminds us is that there is coming a time that how we live this physical life will then determine how we will live the eternal life. And so many times you and I can get caught up and fixated in trying to get as many toys and as many accolades in this 80, 90, 100 year span of life and we completely neglect the next 10,000 years of life. And we have an opportunity as a church, we have an opportunity as a church to teach people the Bible and to tell them that the only hope they have is not the size of their house. The only hope that they have is not how, many education, how much education they have in their past. They need to be ready because when this physical death comes, they need to be, re- be, be ready for the beginning of their eternal life. And so as a church, we have an opportunity to build families, to teach them and to train them to have faith in the home. And we get an opportunity to teach people the Bible and say, this is what you need to be ready for. This is what you need to be striving for. This is what matters. And then one last place, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. We think about how do we take this message of the church. We think about Mark chapter 5 and then how do we incorporate it into what we do today and tomorrow in the life of the church. 1 Corinthians 15. Beautiful passage. Talking about the things that are to come. He says, starting in verse 50, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writing, talking about resurrection, talking about the future. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. What does he say? He says those that died with their hope firm, their faith 
firm in Jesus Christ, they will one day rise again. Those bodies will come and they will meet their souls and they will receive that glorified body that Revelation talks about and we will be with the Lord forever. So he says for those individuals, those loved ones, those friends, those families, those known people, those known associates, when they die and they die in faith and they die in belief, then they, it, that is not the end for them. That is just the intermission, if you will. Because there's coming a day. There's coming a day when the last trumpet will sound, verse 52. And the the, the trumpet will sound and the dead will rise. And he says in verse 53, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on the immortality, this shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, For, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What Paul is saying there in that text is when it comes to what we can do as a church, we need to be reminded, we need to understand the trumpet has not sounded yet. What do you mean, Smith? You look back up in verse 32. He says, hey, there is hope. There is hope for people that die in faith, that die in Christ until the trumpet sounds. The same other type of language in the first Thessalonians chapter 4 when it talks about the shout of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet. What is, what is Paul saying here in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He's saying as a church, we have hope and we have a message of hope to a whole lost generation and whole lost world outside these doors to go and to tell them about the beauty of who Jesus is and the hope they can have in Jesus Christ. And we go until the trumpet sounds. So we just don't look at death and say, why me? We just don't look at death and say, woe is me. We look at this and we use this as a reminder to say, I don't like it. I didn't ask for it. And I wouldn't wish it on anyone else. But oh, what an opportunity to be reminded of the beauty of who God is. And what an opportunity to be reminded of what the hope that I have in Christ. And what an opportunity to be reminded about why my faith should be in something that is unstoppable. Why my faith should be in God and in Christ Jesus. Because all these things of this world will burn up and vanish away. But my hope when it is in Christ, it is sound. And so therefore, in verse 58, therefore be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So it says, instead of you and I getting our, uh, my grandpa used to talk about getting your dauber down. And instead of just getting in the point that you just start to waller and you start to soak and you start to think, oh, poor pitiful me. You look and you say, you know what? I have an opportunity to shout from the rooftops. He's still good. You have an opportunity to show people and point to people and be a witness to people the hope that you have that transcends this life. And we, as a church, can take this message, the fact that Christ has power over death. We can then take that message and we can charge in the darkness and we can chase after lostness to say, you don't have an answer for death. You don't have an answer to grief. You don't have an answer to loss. You don't have an answer to the things that most plague us. But Jesus does. And we remain steadfast and movable working until the trumpet sounds. Too many 
times. It's easy for you and I to get so distracted by the problems in this world that we miss those opportunities to abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that the labor of the Lord is not in vain. Thank you for joining us today at FBC Wellston. We would love to hear from you or connect with you if you will visit our website at fbcwellston.org. Please let us know if we can serve you in any way, and we look forward to connecting with you in the future.